This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. I'm Henry Brady. I'm the dean of the Goldman School of Public Policy. I'm very happy to welcome you here. Uh, tonight is the seventh annual Michael Nacht. Distinguished Lecture in Politics and Public Policy. Uh, Michael Docht was the dean of the Goldman School of Public Policy before I became dean. He was a distinguished dean, did great work, really made the school a great place, and I'm really proud that I, I was able to follow him and, and build upon his extraordinary achievements. He went on to be Assistant Secretary of Defense for Global Strategic Affairs uh, in the Obama administration. And then he came back to us uh, about five years ago and resume teaching. So we're really lucky to have Michael. He's an extraordinary figure in terms of his public service, which is an important thing for the Goldman School and for our nation, and also extraordinary in terms of his teaching and his service to this university. So we're really happy to be able to have this lecture series named in his honor. Now, it's my tremendously great pleasure to be able to introduce Robert Reich, who's Chancellor's Professor of Public Policy. Uh, he's written 13 books, translated into many, many different languages. Uh, he teaches a course, the largest course here on the Berkeley campus. We should have gotten Wheeler Hall, in fact, tonight, it looks like, uh, knowing Bob, uh, Bob Reich's uh, drawing power. Uh, but uh, he teaches 700 students in that course, and it's an extraordinary experience uh, for everyone. It, it's documented, actually, to some extent, in a movie, Inequality for All is a wonderful movie which uh, touches on the themes of tonight's talk, uh, sort of sets the predicate for it, that increasingly we have tremendous inequality in America, and it's a problem, and we need to do something about it. So Bob does it all. Uh, he was Secretary of Labor in the Clinton administration. Uh, today he writes, he, he tweets, uh, by the way, as Secretary of Labor, Time Magazine in 2008 uh, said that he was one of the top 10 cabinet secretaries uh, in the 20th century. So that's pretty extraordinary. So Robert Reich has written books, he tweets, he writes opinion pieces, he teaches, and he lectures. Uh, his most recent book is Saving Capitalism, and he's going to talk about that tonight. So please give a warm welcome to Robert Reich. Well, uh, Henry Brady, Dean Brady, thank you very, very much. Uh, I have uh, the, the pleasure, the pleasure of uh, teaching at the Goldman School of Public Policy, which is the one of the crown jewels in the starry firmament of the University of California, Berkeley, which is itself the crown jewel of higher education in the world. So this is. It's true. Uh, and being a dean or being a, an administrator of any university, I have a test uh, with regard to the difficulty of any job, and it has to do with the ratio between the level of responsibility that one has in a job and the actual amount of authority one has. Uh, and if you have huge amounts, if that ratio gets out of whack and you've got a huge amount of responsibility and very little authority, you're called the dean. Uh, if you have a gigantic amount of responsibility and almost no authority, you're called a chancellor. Uh, and if you are, you have boundless responsibility, I mean, I, absolutely responsibility that does not end, and almost an infinitesimally small amount of authority, you're called a cabinet secretary. <laughs> Thank you for coming tonight. Uh, I want to talk to you about uh, a book that I've uh, written called Saving Capitalism uh, for the Many, Not the Few. The, the title uh, actually turns out to be the worst possible title I could have ever chosen. Uh, not the subtitle, but the title, Saving Capitalism. I just came from a, a book tour, and I spent a lot of time in the South and the Midwest in red states, so-called, and red cities. I asked my publisher 
because I didn't want to just go to the normal cities I go to or the normal places. I asked my publisher if I could please, given that I'm trying to do something in the book that I will explain in a moment, if I could go to places that I normally am not sent on a book tour, uh, which are, again, the South and the Midwest and states and cities that are uh, normally vote Republican and are very conservative. And the publisher accommodated my wish and I've just returned from three or four weeks of uh, being in Red State, Red City, America. And a lot of people did not like the title of the book because they felt that it implied that there was something wrong with capitalism. Saving capitalism sounds like I mean that capitalism needs saving. Uh, now, I, the irony is that I got back to the West Coast. I got to Seattle, and, and then I was in Portland, and, and then down the West Coast, and nobody liked the title of my book because they said, why should we save capitalism? <laughs> so it was, a, it was a title that managed to antagonize and alienate everybody who might possibly read the book. But the subtitle of the book is actually the important thing. It's for the many, not the few. And I entitled the book, Saving Capitalism, for the many, not the few, uh, because there is, it seems to me, and I'm not the first to note this, a serious set of problems having to do with capitalism uh, and who is benefiting from it and who the burdens are on. And we need to talk about it. And when I say we need to talk about it, I don't mean merely people inside a red state bubble or people inside a blue state bubble or a blue city bubble or blue university bubble. I mean we've got to get out of our bubbles and talk across bubbles uh, and reach some common understanding of what the nature of the problem is and what can be done about it. And so I set out to write a book that might hopefully begin that kind of a dialogue. Uh, I was motivated actually by two things. One, a conviction that if we really did get out of our bubbles and started to talk with one another across the country uh, in, a, in a slightly non-ideological way, I say slightly because you can't ever completely divorce yourself from ideology and values and, and frameworks, but certainly if you talk facts and, and, and you were clear about your values, and we talked about how to create a kind of system that worked for most of us, we could, it seemed to me, make some progress. So that was conviction number one. And the second thing that I was concerned about, and I was led to write the book, because I, for years, have been talking about widening inequality in the United States. And it seemed to me that I had not put to paper uh, the things that were not said, that hadn't been said, about the centrality of power in explaining some of that widening inequality. Now, let me, at the risk of uh, revealing too quickly the plot of the book, I'm going to talk about three central mythologies that have, in my view, made it difficult for us to speak across those ideological boundaries uh, and have stopped discussion. They're kind of discussion stoppers. And uh, I, I was revealed, these were revealed to me because in many, many different kinds of venues, I've had the opportunity of, of debating people who I disagree with who are very often called or call themselves conservatives uh, or Republicans or whatever. Uh, and we get stuck at the following points. One point where we get stuck is where the discussion seems to be about a choice that must be made uh, between the market and government. Now, usually it's about four minutes into whatever the topic is. We could be talking about a, a global climate change. We could be talking about uh, peanut farmers in, in, in Georgia. We talk, could be talking about, about anything. It doesn't, doesn't matter. Oh, about four minutes into a debate, somehow the debate kind of degenerates into this question of which do you trust more, the government or the free market? And it struck me uh, that we needed to explode that mythology, that that was the central choice, because it's not a central choice. You can't have government 
and you can't have market separately. A market cannot exist without government making rules. There is no free market in a state of nature. I mean, a state of nature I experienced when I was four years old on the playground, and it was cruel and nasty and brutish and, and short. Uh, I, I didn't want to be there. I wanted to be in a civilized society, and I, that's why I grew up. And what we want, well, grew up somewhat, and what we want, all of us, is a market that is, that is rule-driven, rule-bound. We don't even know what property is. Uh, you can't enforce contracts. Uh, you can't even uh, have any idea of, of the details of, of, of what happens when somebody doesn't pay up. Uh, their promises if you don't have rules. And those rules change over time. Different cultures and different societies have different market rules. And unless we understand what those rules are, and more importantly, unless we understand who has the most influence over making those rules, we don't really have much of a discussion. We just have a kind of an ideological discussion about markets versus governments that means nothing. And so the first mythology that I have tried in this book, and I tried on the book tour and talking to an awful lot of people who call themselves conservatives, Tea Partiers, and Republicans, uh, to shatter is this notion of a choice between market and government. Again, the central question is not market or government. It is who is government for? Who is the market working for? Who has the most influence over the rules that are designed to create and sustain and enforce that market? And I'll come back to that first point in a moment. But this is myth number one that I tried to deal with in the book and shatter in the book. Uh, myth number two that I tried to deal with in the book is, and you've heard it over and over again, you get paid for what you're worth. What you earn depends on what you are worth. Have, everybody, have anybody heard that before? It's a very central idea. It's a very central to the American meritocracy, the idea that people are paid what they're worth. But you see, if you understand the first principle that you can't separate market from government, and the central question is really who has the most influence over those rules, then the central the second issue of whether people are paid what they're worth is either a tautology. I mean, obviously, you're paid for what you're worth in the market because that's what you earn in the market. That's not very interesting. It's either that tautology or it's a false statement about morality, that you are paid what you are somehow morally worth, but that can't be right because the market may not be morally just. In other words, if the market principle number one, is really a function of who has the most power to influence the rules to create the market, then it may be principle number two that you are paid what you are worth in a tautological sense but not in a socially meaningful or moral sense because the market has not socially meaningful or market or, or, or moral uh, in any meaningful sense. Are you following me? I'm looking at your faces, and some of you are, have a blank stare. Uh, and then we get to the third mythology that the book and I've tried to deal with, and it follows from the first two, is that the most important issue we can possibly discuss when we discuss widening inequality, the most important issue we can discuss is how much we tax the people who are wealthy and redistribute to the people who are not. Now, that's an important issue, and it's a very, very central public policy issue. I don't mean to suggest it's not. But if you follow the logic of the first two points, you might come to the conclusion that there are a lot of issues short of the final taxing and redistributing that need examination. Issues having to do with internal, what I call in the book, pre-distributions upward from a lot of average working people to people who have a lot of market power, enough power to, as I said before, change the rules so that they gain even more. I mean, for example, this, is all, this all sounds very kind of philosophical and, and, and un, 
practical, but I want to make it very, very concrete. Uh, in the United States, uh, we uh, Americans pay more for pharmaceuticals than any other citizens of any other advanced country. Now, why do we pay more for the pharmaceuticals we use than the citizens of any other advanced country? Uh, well, there are a lot of reasons for that, but one reason has to do with how the market in the United States for pharmaceuticals is organized. For example, if you are a proprietary drug manufacturer, you're making brand name drugs, uh, well, you are permitted in the United States, you're not permitted in most other advanced industrial societies, but you're permitted in the United States to pay the makers of generic versions of those brand name drugs, who would otherwise uh, produce them much more cheaply. You're pay, you're, you're, you are legally entitled to pay them to delay their introduction of their generic version of your drug after the patent has been has expired. Now again, this is not normal. This is not what is permitted in most other countries. Why is it permitted here? Class? <laughs> well, you know as well as I do. It's because the pharmaceutical manufacturers have extraordinary political power in the United States. Not only enough political power to be exempt from the possibility that the government under Medicare, Medicaid, veterans, uh, would use its negotiating power to get low drug prices, but also from the very pedestrian's issues of, uh, as I just said, pay for delay. It is permissible. You can't even get your drugs from another country. If you're an American and you want to get your pharmaceuticals from where they're more cheap, uh, they're, they're, they're produced more cheaply, like in Canada, you could do, do it. Up until a few years ago, you can't do it any longer. But let's not just pick on the drug companies. The pharmaceutical big pharma is easy. How about internet service? Now, you may know this, but, but you and I are paying more for the internet service that we are getting, and it is a slower service than almost any citizens of any other advanced industrial country. And why is that, class? <laughs> Again, it does have something to do with how the market is organized, which in turn has something to do with who has the most influence over that market. And the big cable companies have a great deal of political clout. Or take food. For example, we are paying a lot of food. Food prices are going up faster than inflation. Crop prices, actually, are going down. In fact, they're at a six-year low right now, crop prices, but food prices keep going up. Why is that? Food prices up, crop prices low. Um, I, during the book tour, uh, I met with a whole group of farmers in central Missouri, uh, family farmers. They were, they were furious at the big food processors who were had so much power uh, over them in terms of the prices that they would actually buy uh, their goods, the, the farm produce from. Uh, and they also were very upset about what they called factory farms, uh, the, the kind of farms that, that were corporate farms. They were not family farmers, but they, because they were factory farms, they, they disregarded uh, all of the environmental issues they, they treated, and they, they didn't even produce high-quality uh, farm agricultural produce. The farmers were, were, were apoplectic. They were, they were angry. They were organizing against these big food processors and the factory farms. Now, why do the big food processors have so much market power? Why does Monsanto have so much market power? Well, it, because it has political power. In the Monsanto's case, it has political power actually to prevent antitrust authorities, and there are antitrust laws still on the books. Believe me, they are still there. Uh, but they have enough power to basically stop the antitrust authorities. We could go on, and I, and I could go on, and I could talk about airlines. Somebody asked me the other day, why is it that airline prices, 
ticket prices haven't really gone down, even though fuel costs, which are the major cost of airlines, have plummeted over the past five years. And the answer may have something to do with the fact that 15 years ago, we had nine major airlines, and today there are four major airline carriers. And through some cities, there is only one or two. And when you only get one or two, what do you have? You have collusion. Have you noticed sometimes that it's the same price? Wall Street is another interesting case. Before the bailout of Wall Street, before Wall Street overextended itself, shall we say, gently. Uh, the five largest Wall Street banks together had 25% of all banking assets in the United States. Uh, that made them too big to fail. Well, now the five biggest banks on Wall Street have 44% of all banking assets in the United States. They are far too big to fail, or curtail, or jail, or nail. So what has happened in all of these instances, and we could go throughout the industrial landscape of America, what we see is in all these instances, we are paying more. You and I are paying more than we need to pay. Because there's not very much competition on Wall Street, for example, particularly among the big banks, that trickles out to the entire banking system, and we probably, most of you, bank at a big bank, and you are probably paying more than you might otherwise know you are paying in terms of if you have an overcharge on your credit card, for example. So in every one of these respects, there is a pre-distribution upward to big corporations, to Wall Street, to the major shareholders... But we don't talk about these pre-distributions upward. All we talk about is taxing the wealthy, maybe, or taxing the big corporations, maybe, and redistributing downward. But the pre-distributions arguably are growing. The pre-distributions upward. So what my hope was is that I could begin to talk with conservatives about these issues, because they affect all of us. In fact, it is not just middle-class people and poor people who are paying more, but the kind of capitalism we are aiming toward, or not aiming toward literally, but moving toward, is a kind of capitalism, a kind of oligarchic capitalism, that is not even necessarily good for the people at the top. It's not good for the people at the top for a number of reasons. Number one, and most obviously, it's not good for them because if all or most of the economic gains to go to the top, there's not enough aggregate demand, not enough purchasing power in the middle class and the poor to keep the economy going, full tilt, which is one reason this recovery has been so anemic. And you also are prone, when so much economic gain goes to the very top, you are prone to a degree of economic instability because people in the middle and below, they have to go deeper and deeper into debt to maintain their lifestyles. And what happens then? You have debt bubbles that explode. In fact, over the last past hundred years, there are two years where the top 1% took home more than 23.5% of total income. Those two years were 1928 and 2007. Now, is there anything about those two years that strikes you as interesting? Or maybe the year that follows each of those two years. So if I am somebody who is very, very wealthy and looking at not only the lack of aggregate demand, the lack of purchasing power in the economy, but also the instability in the economy, I might say to myself, this is not something that I want. I would do better with a smaller share of a more a rapidly growing economy that was more stable than I am doing right now with a big share of an economy that is 
not growing very fast and is very unstable. But I also might look at political instability as well. If I am very wealthy, I might look at what is happening in America and I might be very sensitive to the degree of anger that I see in America. Now, where is that anger coming from? Well, I conduct a kind of free floating focus group that bears a remarkable similarity to the actual national polls, Gallup and other polls that show Americans are increasingly frustrated and angry and anxious and they don't trust many institutions, they don't trust government, they don't trust the economy, they don't trust big corporations, uh, they don't trust Wall Street. They certainly don't trust politicians, they don't trust politics. My free-floating focus group occurs in airports, usually. I'm, I'm walking along in an airport, innocently. And somebody I don't know comes up to me. It happened again just a few weeks ago. Somebody who is a complete stranger to me comes up to me, and I think they come up to me because I am somewhat conspicuous. And they say things, like, as if we've been in a conversation for a long time. They say, so what are we going to do? Somebody came up to me, uh, actually in Oakland recently, and I didn't know the person. They said, can you believe it? <laughs> Put yourself in my place. So what are we going to do? I said, I don't know. I don't know what we're going to do. I wrote this book uh, before uh, the political season, season, uh, the, the 2016 election cycle got underway here in the United States. But I said in the book that it seemed to me that given the degree of not only inequality but also insecurity and the sense of arbitrariness and unfairness that so many people were feeling, that in the future the biggest political divide would not necessarily be between Democrats and Republicans. It would be between the establishment and the anti-establishment. Now, that was before Bernie Sanders declared that he was running for president. And it was also before, and I pause before I use this name in the same sentence as Bernie Sanders, but <laughs> before Donald Trump declared he was running for president. Or, for that matter, uh, a number of other people who are styling themselves as Populists. Now, what is populism? Uh, there is no strict definition of populism, but we know that populism historically has come out of a great deal of anger, public anger. I mean, the prairie populist, William Jennings Bryan, came to the fore because farmers were very angry about using a gold standard, and, and they felt that they couldn't pay their debts, that the Easterners were, were kind of loading the dice. They were rigging the system. Whenever people feel like the system is being rigged, they get angry. And there is a kind of populist upsurge. Before that, there was a sort of a populist upsurge in the 1830s. Uh, the Jacksonians, who were very upset about the Bank of the United States, they were upset about the requirement that in order to vote, you had to own property. They were concerned about legislatures that were corrupt, that were giving out grants and charters to form companies. They wanted anybody to be able to form a company, and they wanted anybody, at least within limits, to be able to vote, and property was not going to be a, a, a determinate, determinative for the Jacksonians. They were terrible people in many ways. I'm not suggesting that we go, go back to the Jacksonian era. Nor am I suggesting we go back to the prairie populists of the 1880s, 1890s. But it's interesting to me that most populist eras do have after them a period of reform. The great progressive era that started in 1901 probably could not have happened without people like William Jennings Bryan or 
Robert LaFollette, the governor of Wisconsin, fighting Bob LaFollette. And in 1901, almost by accident, Teddy Roosevelt became president, and then you had ushered in a period of reform. But the interesting thing about that period of reform, that by certain analyses extends right through to 1916, Taft and Wilson. The interesting thing about that progressive era is that many of those ideas had been bubbling up for years, but they needed that populist anger to push them into national circulation, if it were. And then the fifth cousin to Teddy Roosevelt, years later, became president when the entire nation was in an economic crisis. One out of four working people was unemployed, and many of the ideas that Teddy Roosevelt put forward in the election of 1912 actually were put into effect by his fifth cousin, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And then you had another reform and preceded by a populist era, one could argue, in the 1960s, judging from how some of you look. Some of you remember the 60s. I was there. I had longer hair. I was taller. But in the 60s, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, Medicare, Medicaid, many reforms could not have happened without an upsurge, without a lot of anger, but the anger was channeled in a positive direction. And that's really the issue, because populism can go in one of two directions. It can go in a reform direction, as we saw some of Jacksonian populism go, and, and certainly some of the Progressive Era, and then the New Deal, and much of the 60s, not all of the 60s, but populism and the anger that propels populism can also go in a different direction. That anger can be channeled, unfortunately, and we've seen this historically. There's not a great tradition or much of a tradition of angry right-wing, let's call it authoritarian populism in the United States, but there is some. Father Charles Coughlin, the radio personality of the late 1930s, who was a Nazi sympathizer, anti-Semitic, some would say that also in the category of right-wing or authoritarian populists would be Joe McCarthy, Senator Joseph McCarthy of the 1950s, the communist witch hunts of the 1950s. You see, authoritarian populism very often scapegoats people. It finds enemies. It aggregates power through... Hate through channeling the anger toward resentment and hate of other people, of other groups. And it also is not grounded in democracy very much. It's grounded in power. The authoritarian populists historically, not only in the United States, but around the world, Mussolini and Franco and Hitler and others, what they do is they say, follow me, I am strong enough, I'm powerful enough, I will rescue you from whatever the problems you have. Don't even ask me any questions. They use anger, resentment, hate, and also they create an illusion of strongman power that uses the anger to build their own political base. So it seems to me, and I can't make any predictions about 2016, but certainly we are seeing in America right now the growth of an upsurge in populism and anger that could go in either one of those directions. How do we make sure it goes in a reformist, democratic direction? Well, I think that's where we get into the question and the issue of 
getting out of our bubbles, talking with people across the bubble. I tell my students every year, I say the best way to learn anything is to talk to people who disagree with you. Because in talking to people who disagree with me, you, uh, your own assumptions, your own views will be clarified, will be questioned, and theirs will be as well. Ten years ago, I was living and teaching in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, that's a blue city in a blue state, in a blue part of the country. And I decided to leave. I got a lovely offer from a place called the Goldman School of Public Policy at the University of California, Berkeley. In fact, Michael Knott, for whom this lecture is named, uh, called me one day and he said, you know, would you like to be a visiting lecturer, a visiting professor here at Berkeley? I said, yes, that sounds good. I, I'd like to do that. So I, I got in my Mini Cooper Uh, and I drove from Cambridge, Massachusetts. I don't know how many of you have driven across the country. It's, it's a marvelous thing to do. I drove all the way from Cambridge, Massachusetts to University of California, Berkeley. And I discovered that I, I was 3,000 mi miles away, but I had actually traveled to the same bubble. <laughs> Better climate, but the same bubble. Along the way, I, I, I stopped in, I was stopped in, in Oklahoma. I was in a, a gas line waiting for gas in Oklahoma in my Mini Cooper. I had noticed that there were no Mini Coopers in Oklahoma. <laughs> there are none. There are none. I don't, I don't think there was, maybe there are now. There was certainly none. There were none then. Uh, and I was waiting in line for gas, and these two very large truckers, they came up to my window, they knocked on the window, I, I lowered my window in my Mini Cooper and they stood there for a second, I said, can I help you? They said, what is this? <laughs> I said, this is a Mini Cooper. And there was a long silence and then they said, how does anybody fit in there? Well, I thought for a long instant that, well, why not? And I got out of the car and I said, look, there's no problem at all. <laughs> they looked puzzled and I said, I'm from Massachusetts. We're all under five feet tall. <laughs> they were in their own bubble, their own trucker bubble, their own Midwest truck bubble. Talking to people who disagree with you, talking across boundaries, is critically important. It's not easy. It is harder than ever. It's harder than ever because geographically we are segmenting by political values, but also in terms of the news we get. We are able to insulate ourselves from anybody we disagree with and actually only get feedback and news and views that confirm our own views and our own predicates and premises. And looking out on your lovely faces and seeing how many of you are nodding your heads in agreement with everything I say, I, I say to myself, I'm in the wrong place. I want to get back to red America. No, I don't. But here's what was very interesting to me uh, in those conversations, because I, they, and I, I don't want to generalize too much, but again, many of them called themselves Republicans and conservatives and Tea Partiers uh, when the question came up of, do you trust government? They said, no, but why don't you trust government? Why? Because it's guilty of crony capitalism. They use the term crony capitalism over and over and over again. What do you mean, I said, by crony capitalism? They said, big companies and Wall Street and very wealthy individuals run everything. They run the game. They, they've taken over our government. And I said, well, give me examples. And they gave me examples. And they, they used the term corporate welfare. 
I was so surprised. It, it, I suddenly found myself in a Bernie Sanders rally, but they were all Republicans. And the term corporate welfare, I was surprised that they even were using that term. I, you know, I have to just pause for a moment. I, 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 our clock is running out, and I want to make sure there's time for your questions. But uh, the term corporate welfare uh, came into public use. Do you know when it came into, into public use? Does anybody know that? It's a little factoid. Well, it came into public use in 1994. Uh, it may have been used before then, but it became popularized in 1994. And do you, rem do you remember who popularized the term in a, in a speech that got a lot of attention at the time? Uh, the Secretary of Labor of the United States. Uh, now, this is what happened. It was, actually, it was, a very, it, was a, it, was a, it was a difficult moment for me, a difficult couple of days, because there was, the Republicans were all demanding a very draconian welfare reform, very draconian forms of welfare reform, and Bill Clinton uh, was, was wavering a little bit, and we were trying to give him a little bit more backbone uh, to reject some of the Republican proposals, uh, but uh, he had just been defeated. I mean, he hadn't been, but Democrats were out. Newt Gingrich was coming into town, uh, leading the posse of, of, of a big Republican takeover of Congress. Uh, and, uh, uh, but it was also fairly apparent that corporations were getting a lot of special tax breaks and a lot of special subsidies. And so that I had the temerity to say in a speech that maybe what we ought to do is get rid of corporate welfare and use the proceeds to help people get better jobs. And you'd have thought that I'd have called for a return to some form of communism or early Paleolithic hunting and gathering, because the, the outrage was, was so palpable that I was called by the president's chief of staff into the White House. And he said, did you just give a speech using the term corporate welfare? I said, yes, I did. He said, that was not a good thing to do. We're having a lot of complaints. I said, good. He said, no, 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 we're having complaints not only from corporations and CEOs and, and Wall Street, but we're having complaints right here in the cabinet, at which point one of my colleagues in the cabinet said that he would resign if I didn't stop using the term. And I said, go ahead. So here we are. I'm, I'm, you know, fast forward, and I'm, I'm in, I'm in Cincinnati, uh, and uh, these, uh, all these conservative Republicans all want to talk about corporate welfare. I was del delighted, and then they, what, what else did they talk? They also said they were opposed. I asked them about the Trans-Pacific Partnership. They said they don't like it. It's a bad deal because it was all crafted by big corporations, and it's going to mean a huge job losses. Don't get me wrong, there were a lot of differences, particularly on cultural and religious issues and social issues. But when it came to economic power, there was extraordinary overlap, which makes me think that there is something here, something important going on, and makes me think when I hear Ted Cruz, as I heard Ted Cruz today, I don't know if he said, he used the term crony capitalism this afternoon in a negative way. Now, you may, the sincerity of that remark may be doubted, but that's not the point. Uh, a lot of these candidates on the Democrats and Republicans would not be using these terms if they didn't believe that the people they were talking to really were wanting to hear these kinds of criticisms. And that itself is a big deal. So am I optimistic about the future? I'm cautiously optimistic. I worry about authoritarian populism. 
but I'm cautiously optimistic. I'm also cautiously optimistic because I teach people between the ages of 18 to 25, and in all my 35 years of teaching, I have never encountered a generation of young people between the ages of 18 and 25 who are more idealistic or publicly spirited and dedicated to public service as the current 18 to 25-year-old generation. So we have a long way to go. This is not going to be easy. But reform and reform of our system, our political economic system, I believe is inevitable for all the reasons I have suggested. Thank you all very much. So I have a series of questions here. Uh, I'll run together. Which presidential candidate do you currently see yourself voting for and why? Have you ever met Bernie Sanders? If so, what was he like? Would you accept an invitation to be Bernie's running mate? And then finally, Bernie 2016. This, this crowd seems to be interested in Bernie Sanders. By the way, Rolling Stone just reported that a copy of your book is on his coffee table. Must be true. Um, I, I know Bernie very well, and I like him enormously, and I think his, uh, I admire particularly not only the positions he's taken, which I think are correct and true, uh, but also his tenacity and his, uh, his ability uh, to maintain his passion over all these years, and he hasn't wavered. Uh, I've also known uh, Hillary Clinton since she was 19 years old. In fact, if you keep it in this room, <laughs> I will tell you that I once dated Hillary <laughs> before she met Bill, that is. Do you want to know any more? <laughs> what kind of ice cream did she like? <laughs> well, in, t in 2008, a reporter for the New York Times called me. She was running for president, you remember, and, and he called me and said that they had, they had, un, they had discovered a, a, a collection of her letters from college, from Wellesley, and in one of the letters it had mentioned that she had gone out on a date with me. And, and he asked me, this New York Times reporter asked me, is that if there's anything that I can recall from that date that might shed light on how she would perform as a president. And I could barely remember. I didn't, in fact, I, I didn't remember the debate. I thought that, would be, that, would be, that wouldn't be very nice if I didn't remember the date. So I said, I said with my tongue firmly planted in my cheek that we went to a movie and she wanted an inordinate amount of butter on her popcorn. <laughs> After which there was complete silence. I thought he had hung up. I said, are you still there? He said, yes, I'm just writing this all down. <laughs> so I think, I think she would be a very, I think, uh, notwithstanding, I think she'd be very competent and a uh, very good president. Uh, I think Bernie would also, would be a terrific president, and, uh, but I am not going to endorse anybody, and I'm not going to tell you who I'm voting for. And I, I run, uh, I'm chair uh, when I'm not working for Henry, I'm chair of a uh, wonderful and important organization that you should all join if you're not members of right now, and that is Common Cause. Uh, for 40 years, it's tried to get money out of politics, not all that successfully, but it was one of the driving forces be be uh, behind the McCain-Feingold Act, and it's still doing wonderful work around the country. But uh, as the chairman, uh, we can't, it's very nonpartisan. I can't take a partisan position. So I have two final questions, and you can choose to answer both or just one of them. The first one is, how do we prevent corporate interests from taking advantage of marijuana farmers? That's one. That's choice number one. 
Please give potential activists in the audience examples of activities they could do to change the established power structure. That's number two. So I have to choose. You choose one or two. They're both similar. <laughs> um, well, uh, let, me, let me just say this. I, I, I said before that the students that I teach between the ages of 18, 25, 26 are the most dedicated and idealistic and also dedicated to public service students I've come across in my teaching career. But there's one thing uh, that they're very cynical about, more cynical than other students, and that is politics. Uh, and that is dangerous. Cynicism about politics, to me, is our greatest obstacle with regard to positive change. If we are cynical about politics, we are cynical about our democracy. And if we give up on our democracy, we basically cede everything to the moneyed interests. They would love it if we became cynical, and so cynical that we no longer participated. So my answer to the question of what can you do is to get even more involved than you already are, more engaged in politics. And that means not just voting and serving on juries and paying your taxes. That's not citizenship. Citizenship is active engagement. Maybe getting involved in a local political race. Maybe running yourself for school board. Maybe getting involved in somebody else's race, supporting a candidate you believe in. It doesn't necessarily have to be a, a presidential race. Maybe joining with others in a political movement to achieve a higher minimum wage or to achieve something else that you believe in. People say to me very often, well, I don't have the time. I, how can I possibly have the time? I don't have the time. Well, you do have the time. Just spend a couple of hours less than you're now spending watching television or on your internet or doing email. You have the time. You just don't want to take more time, and I understand that. It seems like a daunting task. But unless we all get on with it, we're not going to have anything for our children and grandchildren to show. Thank you. Uh, Robert Reich, Saving Capitalism. <laughs>